Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. We're heading into winter and soon the holidays. Miss Lily has some indigenous crafted gift ideas to share. Our previous guest, Iron Man Ryan Van Praet, has some updates on his Iron Man competition to share with us, along with some new tech suggestions for getting that ultimate workout and staying safe. And I've got some reflections to share on winter camping on ice. Come on, Lewis. Let's move it before we freeze to the spot here and find Miss Lily. Getting schooled with Miss Lily. Hey, Lily. Hey. With uh, Black Friday behind us, it's time to think about doing a little shopping ourselves. As is your prerogative Mm -hmm. as a parent. (laughs) Are you worried? I'm just making sure we're on the same page about these types of things. Well, don't, you, go, you don't need to worry. We're taking care of you. We always take care of our children. That's very good. At some point, you can take care of your parents. Get, <laughs> yeah, get, get, a, get a job. The show doesn't pay me nearly enough. <laughs> so, Lily, do you have some ideas of what the people your age might like? Okay, people my age. Well, yeah, just in general speaking, you know, okay. our listeners would like. There's been international demand for Indigenous-made goods for centuries. So here are five Indigenous-owned companies with gifts from books to boots for the holiday and beyond. Lily, it used to be that uh, people would go to the north and bargain with the Indigenous people for their handicrafts and their various creations and then bring it south and sell it at extreme profits i actually knew a guy i grew up with a guy and i won't mention his name and this i'm talking like you know 40 years ago at least and um he got his pilot's license and when you're starting off as a pilot you have to clock the hours if you want to get a good job with an airline and the best way to do that in canada is fly a bush plane up north Mm. and that's what he did so he would come back with boxes and boxes of beads and mutlocks and other crafts and then sell it at incredible profit and and he was pretty proud he thought he was you know being a real entrepreneur and but you know what that doesn't happen so much anymore thankfully indigenous people got organized and they cut out those greedy middle people and now you can buy direct thanks largely to the internet too right yeah social media indigenous creators are getting way more and more attention like they deserve to after a long time of being silenced so yeah no there's a lot of more response for that cool here are five indigenous-owned gift ideas. Okay. Uh, number one, soft hide boots called mukluks. I have these. These are my winter boots. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Manitoba mukluks. Uh, but you can buy mukluks from any company. Ha- they've warmed feet through Arctic winters for thousands of years. Sewn initially from seal, moose, and caribou pelts, Manitoba offers modern takes on the ancient technology that are equally suited to snowdrifts and downtown streets. New for fall 2022 is the Sherling Lined Reflection Tall Winter Boot, which is $220, a collaboration with Apsaloke Nation Bead Artist Elias Jade Not Afraid, whose work features in the permanent collection of the National Museum of American Indian. Wow. My experience with mukluks is that they're really good in dry sort of climates where the snow squeaks under your foot, Mm. but you get them into some slushy puddles and... Yeah, they get wet pretty quick. Oh, mine are waterproof. Are they? Yeah, mine don't ever get wet. Nothing seeps through mine. Well, that's, uh, that's you know, the uh, science meets tradition, isn't it? Well, that, why do you think they're made of seal hide? 
Traditionally, yeah. they're made of seal hide because seal is like it's naturally waterproof. Yeah, but the fur on the inside or the fur on the outside? Well, it doesn't even get through to the fur on the inside because of the stuff on the outside. Are your seal skin? No. What What are yours made out of? I'm not sure. They're not leather. They're leather. Yeah. Yeah. And they're waterproof. Yeah. They must have some sort of coating. Nothing on them. gets through. Oh. Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay, what else you got? Number two, skincare products from British Columbia's Squalan Botanicals use traditional Squamish plant knowledge and ingredients, including calque, which is wild rose, um, mints, which is usnea lichen, and kaiwanikwe, which is poplar. The company's Lex Calming Set, which is $99, features salts and salve made using wild rose and yarrow, Plus, body oil infused with the nettle and devil's club that thrive in the BC Coastal's rainforest. All ingredients are cultivated or foraged sustainably, and founder and ethnobotanist Lee Joseph of Squamish First Nation has used Squalin as a platform for plant restoration, confounding the Hayam Project to distribute seed packets to native communities. Wow, that's pretty good that you know all those words. Oh my god, I'm out of breath. <laughs> I guess doesn't matter who you are anyone might find these products useful if you have dry skin or you want to take anyway, care of your skin yeah that's always fun mm-hmm. uh number three with the mission to amplify indigenous voices canada's women-owned raven reads send out seasonal boxes for adults and children filled with hand-picked books and gifts and it's an annual subscription of 259 dollars Feature four gift boxes. Each includes a book by an Indigenous author, a letter from the author or box curator, and two or three additional gifts from the Indigenous creators. The kids' version, it's $204, comes with two or three books by Indigenous authors or illustrators suited to children ages four to nine. This is so cool. Book boxes are so popular now. Yeah, yeah. gift boxes. Everyone likes to open a box and get a bunch of surprises. That's that's really nice. Specifically book boxes. Every month people get a new book. Now this is all indigenous. It's great. Yeah, it's really cool. Number four, founded by Dainé Navajo. Yeah. Graphic artist Jared Ki Yazi, the Tempe, Arizona-based fashion label, OXDX mm-hmm. highlights indigenous issues and imagery with a mission to preserve culture by passing on stories through art. Wow. When designing the company's Corn Sovereignty Tea, which is $32, Yazi drew on memories of harvesting fall field corn with his grandparents in Black Mesa, in Black Mesa, Arizona. Together, the family would pick the corn, then grind it into flour and roast it over flame or steam it in a traditional clay oven. That sounds pretty amazing, eh? Yeah, nice fashion stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very cool. Number five. Okay, last one. Run oh. by an all-female team of Chickasaw artisans, Mahota Textiles is based in the Chickasaw Nation town of Sulphur, Oklahoma. Blankets, pillows, and accessories woven on computerized looms draw on native motifs from across the southeastern U.S., including the spiral and concentric circles used to depict the sun since ancient times. This Chickasaw map blanket is $320 and recreates a 1723 Chickasaw deerskin map credited to 18th century Chickasaw leader Fani Minko, depicting trade routes, waterways, and the Chickasaw Nation historical relationship with neighboring groups. That's so cool. Yeah, that is cool. That's so cool. Mom would really like that. Yeah. Lily. Anything there, uh, you know, pique your attention? 
get your fancy uh what do you think i have all that i need oh okay so i have my mucklucks and i have my skincare stuff <laughs> so you're fine yeah okay all right oh boy she's gonna be hard to buy for again i send a list every time <laughs> and we follow the list religiously <laughs> no, and it never fails time for the bucket list Ryan Van Prate, he is the Ironman competitor, back and alive. Ryan, what happened with you? How'd you make out? Short story is a finished. And, uh, you know, you can never be disappointed when you finish uh, another Ironman. I think this was number eight that I finished. Wow. Uh, it was my slowest of all my finish time. You had yeah. 17 hours to finish before they kicked you out. And you finished yeah. in, in what time? It was 13.28. So. Now, what's your best time? My best time actually was my, my one just previous. My best time yeah. is an 1106, but that was in Florida, yeah. flat as a pancake. And this <laughs> was, and this 1328 was uh, in Penticton, BC, which is very not uh, flat as a pancake. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, so did you, yeah. are you happy with where you positioned amongst all the other iron people? So uh, ultimately, you know, I set this goal for myself 20 some odd years ago that I, you know, I'd love to finish top half. If I finish in the top half of a race, you know, I'm never super bummed. And I, and I was top half, not by a lot, but I think out of the 15 or 1600 competitors, I was in the 600 ish. And I was first of two para athletes. But only two of you out of like 1500. I don't know. I mean, everybody out there has got, got something they're battling. You know, they're battling age, they're battling diabetes, chronic conditions, uh, yeah. all sorts yeah. of stuff. Did anyone take you to task on the tandem bike? Because you got an advantage there, right? Normally on a tandem for 180K, uh, you know, our goal was around 540. My best time ever was a 459 and change. That was in Florida. Yeah. Most of the time you're in the 540-ish range on some sort of rolling terrain. We, we finished the bike in about 6, 608, I think. That does include one... Uh, one potty break considering the incredible amount of climbing uh we we held our own i think we were we were close to top uh i think we were top 20 percent of overall cyclists so we mm -hmm. we did okay give us your favorite moment and your least favorite moment well and i want to preface this too by saying you know when i when i mentioned that you know poor me my slowest time i'm getting older blah 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 my guide that I had was 10 years older than me and just a rock star. Um, you, you know, the beauty of this is that you're essentially doing four sports. You're doing swim, bike, and run, and then nutrition. And, um, you know, for me, it was the easiest uh, Ironman swim I'd ever had. Not because of pacing, like we had a good pace. It was just I was in probably the best swim shape I've ever been in. How many um, kilometers did you do? So that, that's 3.8 kilometers. And we, okay. we crawled out of the water in about an hour and 10 minutes, which is right, right smack dab average for me that you credit this new uh, sort of perpetual motion pool you put in your backyard yeah. oh yeah the, hey. the endless pool absolutely yeah it was uh, I, I felt super fantastic on the swim so that was that wow. was good and the run the run has always been my nemesis but all summer during training I was having some some issues with it I just for whatever reason I was having some heart rate stuff going on I just wasn't getting any fitter and I just didn't seem to have the endurance on the run and I mean, we managed oh. to get through 15K and, uh, you know, and then it started to kind of bother me. And so 
uh, yeah, and it wasn't even a nutrition thing. I think that actually was a highlight. Yeah. So normally when my nutrition bothers me, I feel like I'm going to vomit, right? But you yeah. legitimately think something's going to happen. But here, I didn't feel bloated. I didn't feel any lower gut distress. I didn't have any cramps. Um, you know, I had good energy. The nutrition actually was going really well, but I did have some weird, you know, nausea stuff going on that, that kind of, you know, when you feel like you're going to vomit, it's kind of hard to run. So then you mm -hmm. walk. And uh, oh. yeah, so it was, uh, that was the low light was, was the marathon. And it was mostly because I knew I could finish walking, but it's not mm -hmm. really what you go there for. And so you're battling, you know, the last 13, 14, 15 miles, you're battling the idea that I don't want another, I don't want to walk to another finish just to get another medal. And yeah. so there's, you know, there's the demons of, well, I should just stop. Like, there's no point. I should just stop. But, you know, thankfully you didn't, because it's always nice to cross the finish line and finish what you start. So uh, my guide did fantastic um, being tied to me for 13 and a half hours. <laughs> Are you guys still talking? <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you'll want to guide me anytime soon for an Ironman. But, you know, after the race, my knees were a bit wonky from all the climbing. I had some, some toe foot injuries that were finally clearing up. But uh, the, the biggest drama was about two weeks ago. I was raking leaves and I thought, oh, I got this weird scab on the back of my leg. Because, you know, you're a blind guy. You bump into things. You cut yourself. And yeah. I was like, this isn't going away. And I got my wife to look and she's like, yeah, that's a tick. And it didn't oh, really man. freak me out until she added the line. And I can see it's little legs. Oh, <laughs> so, sticking out. Oh, oh no. so, so gross. My mother-in-law actually pulled it out. Uh, she was a health inspector. She's done that before. So she pulled it out. It was yeah. still alive. They put it in a jar. And um, yeah, I went to the doctor. And he's like, yeah, you, you're fine. But uh, I have to go do like an antibiotic thing just in case. How so, long do you think you had it on you? I had it for about a week. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Just because, yeah, you know, yeah. a blind guy, you think you're, you know, yeah. that's just another cut. I cut myself, but you're like, no, nope, it's a thing feasting off of me. Do they even test the ticks anymore for, for the diseases or they just automatically put you on uh, antibiotics? Yeah, he's not, they're not going to test it. He, there was no other symptoms. I feel fine. Just one course of antibiotics. It's kind of scary stuff in a way. Well, we had a few on the dogs uh, over Thanksgiving weekend camping, and but they were tiny. Like my kids said, they were size like grains of rice. Yeah, this one was a little bit bigger because uh, he started off tiny, but I think he's been munching on my leg for a week. So he's yeah, full of blood. When's the next race? Do you know? Do you have you booked yourself? We did, yeah. So I don't. It's funny. I don't know who my guide is. Uh, I've got a, a few that I'm I'm asking, but my next one actually, you know, after you do a big year of Ironman, you kind of want to your whole year is focused on that and you don't yeah. get to do a lot of other races. So next year, the plan is to get back into just racing lots of smaller things, so to speak. So uh, I did sign up for Ironman 70.3 in Mont Tremblant and that's next June. I might do a 70.3, which is essentially a half Ironman uh, in Muskoka as well. Um, maybe the other one in, uh, in Niagara Falls, uh, that we normally do and maybe some running races. I'm, I'm determined to get my running back to where it was. Cause it's pretty dreadful at the moment, but yeah, you just put that focus in and see what happens. <laughs> Outdoor tips and tech. What about the high tech stuff yeah. into the Apple watches and the heart rate? The endless pool is pretty high tech. And uh, oh, yeah. you know, my treadmill is Bluetooth smart treadmill. So basically it talks to various apps and I have the indoor trainer, which, 
you know, is Bluetooth smart. And so it talks to the apps and I can ride virtually and simulates great. And, uh, you know, I've always been a, a, a heart rate monitor guy. I do have yeah. an Apple watch. I've, I've had mixed results with it. You know, a $700 watch versus $160 Fitbit. The devices aren't necessarily as accessible for us blind folks, but the app is pretty decent. So are you wearing the Fitbit then? Versa 3. It looks like an Apple watch. And for me, with my vision, I can still read the screen, at least the time okay. on it and a couple of the metrics. Yeah, it's not an Apple watch, but at a quarter of the price, you got to maybe take a good look at it. And uh and I think the Fitbit ecosystem, lots of people have it. So it's a good way to compete with family and friends and keep yourself motivated. I always find it frustrating. I spent more time fidgeting around with the thing in the gym, trying yeah. to get it, you know, starting and stopping and, you know, for the different exercises. It's just, it's a huge distraction. I can tell when my heart rate starting to race a bit and I just back it down. Getting back to getting used to your body uh, yeah. and, and, and the signals. And I think sometimes technology, we... We, we get away from that. And because sometimes, you know, devices lie. If your heart rate monitor is not on properly or yeah. it's not conducting properly, it's going to read errors. Or, you know, sometimes uh, wrist-based heart rate monitors like Fitbits or Apple Watches, they're historically a little wonky because mm -hmm. of, um, if they're, the watch is not worn properly, you mm -hmm. may be getting not the best readings, especially in interval training when the heart rate goes up and down really quickly, they have a hard time keeping up. And so, it's important to, I guess, not be, not be too beholden to the device. When I do my actual like racing and most of my training outdoors, especially, uh, I, I have a Garmin uh, watch and it has the good physical beeps. You know, before I start the run, I ask my, my guide, you know, to make sure I'm on the right screen. Um, mm -hmm. You know, for Ironman, I had uh, the watch set for a, an alarm. I think it was every 20 minutes on the bike, it would, it would just go beep, beep, beep. And, and, mm -hmm. you know, it was a reminder to, to eat, right. For fueling. Um, I had a heart rate alarm as well to keep me, my heart rate, uh, lower on the bike. Um, so if it got too know, high, it would warn you. It would be a different kind of beep over an endurance event. It's really important to ensure that you, you don't, uh, over rev the engine too much too often because then mm -hmm. you'll pay for it later on. You so burn out. I think no. GPS are the way to go. Being a data nerd, you want to know how far did I go and how fast did I go? What was my mm -hmm. pace? Um, mm -hmm. I use my my phone uh, with the app that runs the endless pool. So I, I know my pacing and my distance. Question on that endless pool. You can yeah. see a little bit. So you can see if you're swimming at the right speed. Because if you are if you can't see you're swimming at the right speed, you're going to bang into the front. Or you're going to bang into the back. You're going too fast, too slow. How do you, how do you manage yeah. that? I took a two by three foot black rubber bath mat. And the yeah. bath mat, basically, I stuck right under the middle of like where I wanted to stay. And so when I would stare... As long as I could see the bath mat, I knew that basically I was in the right position. If I drifted too far off the back, my, my feet would just touch the back. And, and you could speed the pool up, the current up and slow it down. You know, when you spend lots, many, many thousands of dollars for a pool, I made the extra $300 purchase for a, a Wi-Fi card. And basically what it does is it allows you to control the pool's um, speed with an app on your phone. Before I go for a swim, I, I pull up the app. Um, which basically connects to the pool. I pull up a pre-made program that I have nine times 200 meters with 36 seconds or 30 seconds rest in between. So I have that all ready to go. I fire up the uh, music and which play to my Bluetooth, like bone conduction headphones that sit on my, my cheeks yeah. while I swim. I start my music and I start the, the swim spa and it kicks on and I have it go really slow for about 30 seconds. And then all of a sudden the engine goes and the current kicks up and 
it goes for 200 meters at the pace I picked and then the engine slows down and I know that's my rest interval. And as soon as it kicks up again, I start swimming again. So yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's brilliant. I wonder how you'd do it without, if you had no sight. So this time of year when it's dark early, I, what I do is I stay closer to the front. And so I have my hand hit the uh, the grill where the current comes out without any fear of you know chopping my fingers off. You're not banging your finger because you're not moving forward, right? Right. And you, you know, if you put a little effort in, you'll, you'll move forward a bit and then you, you know, you realize you're close. Or if you get tired and you start drifting off the back, you can, you can feel the change in, in the current and kind of how it um, is turbulent through the water. You can feel the width of it change a little bit differently. And if you drift too far back, you know, you'll, your feet will eventually will just touch the back, but you have to drift quite a ways. How big um, is the pool? Well, it's 15 feet long, but when you stick the current thingy in there, you're probably about 12 feet and it's deep, right? So when I stand up at 5'11", um, it's just at the bottom of my sternum. It can be a hot tub. Once every couple of weeks, I'll crank it up to like 99 degrees just so we can hang out in it for fun for a day or two. Last winter, we discussed the various types of on-ice winter shelters, you know, for ice fishing. The pop-up tent that you sort of screw to the ice with some big bolts so it doesn't blow away. The flip-over style plastic sled that has uh, the built-in swivel padded seats and a tent that pops up and covers you and keeps you nice and warm and sheltered from the wind. And then there's the wooden ice shack, the traditional wooden ice shack. Now, most people always thought if you wanted to sleep on the ice, you needed one of these wooden shacks. And you see little cities of these popping up all over the place just uh, at each end of Ottawa on the Ottawa River. There's a number of these. A friend of mine, actually, he has some of these larger ones that measuring 20 feet by 12 feet, fitted up with bunk beds and flat screen TVs and fridges and stoves and electricity running from a generator. Uh, no running water, but uh, everything you need, really, to set yourself up for a, a day and a night on the ice. But they don't come cheap. You, you know, you rent these things for $500 a night. But you get your friends out there, you split it up, and it can be a lot of fun. But now the trend is ice camping using these pop-up shelters. The pop-up shelters have become much nicer and bigger and roomier and more stable in the wind. And they also have a quilted exterior covering. So they protect you from the rain. If it starts to rain, they keep you dry. And they have some insulation in the quilting so they don't get so cold. It's not like being inside a kind of a, a wet bag that gets all wet from your humidity of your breath. You fit them up with a few folding chairs, maybe a few lightweight folding cots, some lights, a propane heater, a CO2 alarm, just in case your heater malfunctions. They've got little vent holes in the tops of these tents too, so you always have some fresh air coming in. You know, you're burning a flame with these propane heaters, so you need to have oxygen coming in to feed the flame. Otherwise, you're going to run out of oxygen in there. And, uh, you know, some holes in the ice drilled with an electric ice auger, so you don't have to have the fumes of the gas auger, or you can just do it with a manual auger. You can even get floors, but the best way to make the floors is just get those two foot by two foot foam tiles that sort of have the puzzle piece edging, get a bunch of those, snap them together, you know, cut the holes in them, drill your holes in the spots, clean up with a bit of a towel to dry everything, and then put on your interior ice shelter shoes and relax and catch some fish. You sleep in here and you wonder, why am I sleeping in here? Sometimes the bite is way better at night and, you know, you might as well be there. You come out. You spend the afternoon, you have the afternoon bite, the evening bite, and then that midnight bite, early morning bite, 
and then you pack up, go home, or, or you stay for another day. Now, I've watched a lot of YouTube videos, uh, young people, all sorts of people who do this ice glamping, you know, with their own shelters, and they never talk about the bathroom issue. Where do you go to the bathroom? Like when you rent uh, a shack from an established outfitter, they put, you know, outhouses out there on the ice. So everyone shares an outhouse, but there's a place to go. And that's important because you're not going to use the holes in the ice where you fish through to use as a, a, a toilet. You know, that's just wrong in so many ways. Just don't do that. It's just wrong. And if you're just going to go outside and, and, you know, pee in the snow and all around, that's sort of wrong too because all that's going to show up when the snow melts back. You're going to see all these stained snowy areas. It just looks bad. You know, the easiest way to deal with this, you can get some pretty fancy little plastic toilets that have flushability in them and you can load them up with plumber's antifreeze. It's a, it's actually food-grade antifreeze, so it won't poison anybody. It's mostly just salt and water. The salt just lowers the freezing temperature. It's pink, so you know what it looks like. But you can put that in the tank and it, it it's, keeps everything from freezing. Or just get a five-gallon bucket and buy yourself one of those clip-on toilet seats from Amazon and set that up uh, maybe outside your main shelter and you can even get a little you know potty tent to set up on top of it so you have a little bit of privacy in there then uh, when it's time to go home you know snap the lid on bring it home and someone's going to have to dump it into the toilet and down the hatch that's a good job for the blind person because they don't need to see it all what's happening just plug your nose how do you catch fish in the shack at night anyways? Well, they make these rattle reels, right? And you hang them on the sides of the tent and drop the line down in there and bait them maybe with a bit of salted fish or a worm. And when you're sleeping and a fish comes and, and takes your bait, starts to swim away, and the reel starts to unwind as the line gets pulled off it, the rattles inside the reel are quite loud and they'll wake you up. And you've got a hand-to-fish battle because there's no fishing rod. You're just going to take that line in your hand and you're going to pull him in or he's going to pull the line out and it's it's fun it's a lot of fun so they make these rattle reels for everybody but they work really well for us people who are blind i'm going to try to convince miss lily to try it stay tuned everybody i'm margaret shepherd of the ami podcast tripping on air every month my co-host alex hajar and i spill the tea on what it's really like to live with ms Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.